you're listening to this podcast, you probably have an interest in global affairs. My name's Garrison, and I'm the host of The New Diplomatist, and I wanted to say a special thank you to each and every one of you who tune in twice a month to listen to the latest interviews that we hold with ambassadors, analysts, and experts. And we appreciate your support. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Share the word. But if you're interested in getting even more out of The New Diplomatist, I'd encourage you to visit our Patreon page and consider supporting us at one of our monthly supporter levels. Each level has special, unique perks. A special thank you this month to our ambassador-level supporter, Jeff Flores. Jeff, we appreciate your support. We have a great interview in store for you today. Enjoy. Welcome to the New Diplomatist Podcast, and as usual, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I have a very special guest with me from the University of Plymouth, Dr. Patrick Holden. Doctor, it is an honor to have you on the podcast today discussing Brexit, the UK, and Ireland. Thanks. Great to be on. So, Dr. Holden, could you perhaps give a brief introduction to the listeners of some of your impressive work in in your career and what your role is at the university there and some areas of expertise that really play into the discussions today? Sure. So I lead the Master's in International Relations at Plymouth, my own research. Originally, I did a PhD on the EU's economic diplomacy with, with North Africa, continued on those lines looking at economic cooperation, aid politics, trade politics, uh, analyzing this from a qualitative perspective, mostly I suppose about language and, and power, and um, tracing new configurations of power in this ever-changing world. So when Brexit came along, I'm Irish myself and know Irish history and the Irish political situation quite well, well, hopefully. And so I, I combined that interest with the Brexit economic power standoff between the UK and the EU. So I have, like many people, been publishing and, and commenting on, on Brexit for a, for a few years now. Well, that's wonderful. And it's a high honor to have you on the podcast and bringing such a wealth of knowledge to it. And I know our listeners really appreciate that. So one of the things that I'd like to maybe start off the discussion and point in this direction, and we'll kind of go from there, is I believe that there's a fairly widespread familiarity on this side of the Atlantic in the United States with the British government generally. I think most people recognize the Prime Minister's Boris Johnson and the House of Commons and so on. And perhaps some of the more engaged citizens might even recognize some of the other cabinet equivalent officials inside his government. But I don't think that there's a widespread familiarity outside of perhaps the Irish American community with Ireland's Prime Minister, with their structure of governance and who's in power currently and, and how that sort of plays into the dynamics that Brexit is currently unleashing. Could you maybe give a, an overview of the current political outlook in Ireland and we'll incorporate Brexit from there? Yeah, yeah. Ireland's Prime Minister Taoiseach is Michal Martin and he's, he's just been in power for a few months now. Now Ireland has a coalition government, which is quite common, and Ireland's political system is much more like continental Europe than the UK or the US, where it's normally more winner-takes-all and a clear result for, for better or worse. So, so currently Ireland has a a coalition between two of the largest parties that are both centre-right, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and the major opposition is Sinn Féin, which is the more stronger nationalist party. Uh, this uh, government's only just begun, so it, it should last four or five years, but, but it might not, uh, we'll see. It hasn't mattered a great deal in terms of attitudes towards Brexit and the UK in the past few years, 
who's been in power because there's been a broad, you call it bipartisan in the US, or a broad consensus on what Ireland needs to do, which is prevent a hard border re-emerging with, with Northern Ireland. And so let's, let's delve into that a little bit, because that's probably one of the single biggest sticking points of negotiations last year and, and certainly this year in Brexit, in the process between Brussels and London negotiating on the various trade aspects and on the free movement of peoples and so on. Could you take us maybe on just a little brief history tour on the Irish border, the, the significance of that line between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Because many countries around the world have borders, some of them hard borders, but this is a particularly sensitive issue uh, for the Emerald Isle. Could you sort of delve into the history of what brought us to this point and why it's so important to avoid a hard border? Yeah, so let me go back briefly into like deep history, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, historically, Ireland, Ireland was an Irish kingdom, but within the UK, or within the English crown, and then it became part of the UK fully in 1801. But uh, very many people in Ireland most always wanted some form of, of self-government. What form this would take was debatable. How things emerged, uh, the compromise couldn't be found between giving some kind of, say, home rule or some limited a devolution to Ireland and it was World War One and the Easter Rising and to cut a long story short, uh, the Irish nationalism became a bit more radical and went for a complete break with the UK. However, uh, in the northeast of Ireland in particular, it wasn't only in the, the northeast, but in the northeast in particular, there was a, a majority that wanted very much to stay with the UK, that very much identified as British. It was mostly linked with a Protestant uh, religious background. What was seen by many as a temporary compromise at the time, Ireland was partitioned, and most of the island, 26 county, what would become the Republic of Ireland, became separate from the UK and soon became completely independent, while Northern Ireland as a new structure was created. Importantly, this was six counties, and many had not seen this as a permanent uh, thing, and indeed the border was kind of a rush job, as is often the case, and wasn't re really a very manageable border. This would become apparent or very important 50 years later. It goes through farms and various areas, and it was just, a, at the time, it was a manageable area for the, the Unionist Protestant majority to form Northern Ireland. Now, both parts of Ireland had different types of problems, really. The, the Catholic Ireland had a lot of social problems and economic problems. Northern Ireland had a, a deep sectarian problem from the beginning because although there was a Protestant majority, there was a significant minority of, let's say, Catholic nationalists who, as you can imagine, very much saw themselves as Irish and saw themselves as being put in an, an artificial minority in this state called Northern Ireland. This could perhaps have been managed in some compromise found, but uh, again, there wasn't. And violence broke out without going into the details in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And in particular, a campaign led by the Provisional uh, Irish Republican Army tried to by military force and bombing, uh, separate Northern Ireland from the UK and forcibly rejoin it to, to Ireland. So there were all kinds of other groups and all kinds of violence from, from different sides, including the state. Eventually, um, many years later, after several thousand lives, political compromise was found in 1998. This was the famous uh, Good Friday Agreement. And the key core tenet of that was that the nationalists had to accept that Northern Ireland existed 
this separate six-county state, but that, and this had happened already partly due to the European Union, the border would become in many ways meaningless. So there would still be, there would be this Irish space, this all-Ireland space as, as well, and people could move and travel and, and work. Uh, and in particularly at the time, the military outposts, of which there were many, which the British had used to try and monitor this very unmanageable border, uh, would come down and it would be totally normalised. At the same time, it was made clear that in the future, Northern Ireland have the right to join the, the, the rest of Ireland and that the UK government would not, would not block this or would even, would even facilitate this if, if people voted that way. So you had a compromise there and a delicate balance of power between the, the unionist, uh, Protestant and Catholic nationalist groups within Ireland, within Northern Ireland, although increasingly there are people that don't identify either way, and that's, that's important, something we might come back to. And the role of the UK, it was still part of the UK, but also the Irish government had an influence, and there were these, there's this north-south cooperation and some institutions and so on. Basically, a very delicate balance, and then along comes Brexit, which is proverbial bull in a china shop into this delicate situation. Indeed. Uh, because what Brexit meant, or in particular how the UK decided to do it, was to break away completely from the, the EU's uh, customs and econo legal economic zone. And this meant there had to be a border between the UK and the EU, which all other things being equal would have meant putting back a border on the between the Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. And this was what the Irish government was been trying to evolve, uh, avoid. And crudely put, they and the EU pressured the UK to sign special agreements to ensure that this wouldn't be the case and to give Northern Ireland a kind of a special status in which it's Still part of the UK, uh, of course, and still part of UK trade and economic zone, but it's going to be applying uh, EU law and uh, even EU customs and checks and so on. And what this means from the EU's point of view is that there doesn't need to be a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, but there are checks between uh, Northern Ireland and the UK. And now that kind of brings us to the current the current controversy or sticking point, which is this internal markets bill that has been discussed extensively throughout the UK. And maybe perhaps briefly, you could just touch on what that consists of. And generally speaking, I know it does involve that agreement you mentioned last year, the withdrawal agreement that had kept Northern Ireland inside that EU superstructure to the extent of not needing a border. That now seems in jeopardy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the internal market bill, really a radical move because it was only nine months after signing and, and ratifying and implementing the, the treaty and it explicitly breaks some of it. Now, it actually breaks, it's kind of clever though, and it actually breaks some of the duller technical elements. It doesn't say that the UK is abandoning the entire agreement or the entire Northern Ireland element of the agreement. It actually breaks the technical thing about sending goods from Northern Ireland to the UK and some kind of uh, forms that the EU wants filling out because it's all part of monitoring what's going on in its, its market area. And something else which is important to the UK government about subsidies and whether the EU got the UK to agree that companies operating in Northern Ireland wouldn't get special subsidies that would make 
would give them an unfair advantage against other EU firms and that. And so last month, uh, the UK government announced that it was going to unilaterally override those two elements in this, this broader bill that's also about Scotland and Wales and other parts of the UK, which is, is quite interesting. And that was quite, quite a move. And I think it was designed to send a signal to the EU that uh, if these ongoing trade agreements didn't work, uh, they couldn't uh, they couldn't rely on the, the UK implementing what it agreed the previous year. So it was we were talking really hardball uh, negotiation tactics uh, with a lot of collateral damage to the UK's reputation because really I mean nine months after signing a treaty, declaring your intention to break it is even by the standards of, of, of cynical geopolitics pretty pretty dramatic timing of these things is important and the bill hasn't come into law yet and indeed the house of lords has uh, has blocked it has rejected it even government supporters in the house of lords said this is well dishonorable frankly to to break a treaty and and break the rule of law like this Uh, meanwhile negotiations have been getting on with with the eu and it looks like there's certainly more positive sounds coming now that they might have a free trade agreement the significance of that is that if the UK more generally has a free trade agreement with the EU, Northern Ireland's situation would still be special, but there would be fewer checks and there would be less hassle overall. It would be slightly less disconnected. And so in in your mind, do you see a deal as likely at this stage? I, I recognize that that's something of a prognostication that you know no one can say for certain, but I did see that in political Europe, Peter Ricketts, among other people, you know, the former British ambassador to Paris and, and to NATO, was predicting a, what he called a thin Brexit deal, where perhaps they will punt some of the more sticky issues to the next year, but at least get uh, enough core elements on paper to avoid a return of that hard border. Do you feel that that's a, a likely outcome? It could be, well, again, I should state, according to the law, the hard border shouldn't return anyway because the withdrawal agreement is is supposed to be separate from the future kind of trade between the UK and the EU. But there is a suspicion that if there was really no deal, the UK wouldn't keep the agreement. That's one of the, the scenarios. But yeah, well, I think both sides want a deal. I think it's interesting when you look, there's a delicate choreography going on in which they criticize each other, but then they, they don't break off the trade talks. Um the EU actually behaved very calmly when you think of it. No one has done this to it before, like signed an agreement with it and nine months later said we're breaking parts of it. They have began what they call an infringement procedure uh, against. They had to really, because it was so obviously breaking the, the previous agreement, what the, the UK is planning to do. But they responded calmly to it and they've kept, kept negotiating both sides. Have now it seems they're going into something they call the tunnel which in EU speak is when you go into really deep and intensive negotiations with everything on the table so you can get all the side deals that might work uh, and don't brief the media, importantly, and don't have this megaphone diplomacy. So they seem to be heading towards that. Uh, Funnily enough, probably one of the biggest issues is fishing, even though that's economically not that important at all. I think fishing is kind of a symbolic thing for the UK because they, they want to show some advantages of Brexit. And, and to be honest, there, there are very few economic advantages. It's mostly it's mostly very problematic economically. But fishing is something everyone understands. Uh, the UK government wants to be able to say uh, we have now much more control over 
waters around the UK than, than before. Whereas other countries like France have their fishermen used to fishing in, in these waters and that they want uh, a deal more like what what had been the case when the UK was an EU member. So we'll see, it's hard to believe though that, that such a big deal would really flounder on, on such an issue. So we'll see if they can't find a compromise. My bet is that they will sign some kind of deal because I do think both sides want it. I think if the UK had wanted to walk away or if the EU had wanted to, the, the UK gave them the perfect excuse, but they didn't. And likewise, the, the UK talks very tough but I think the government is, is well aware that having no deal would be really big economic problem. On top, of course, we all have to remember what we're going through with COVID-19 and all, all the problems that's creating as well. And, and absolutely. And that's something I'm glad you mentioned because it segues nicely into the, this next section of the podcast for me, which is previous guests. And I know I had uh, Dr. Nicholas Wright on here from University College London last episode. He did mention that the virus and the pandemic response has sort of put a, a strain on the devolved powers of government to the various sections of the UK because, uh, as I understand it, health regulations are a devolved power. And so when the health minister stands up in London and declares this is the policy of the UK government, he's really only speaking for England. I mean, he's not speaking for Wales or for uh, Scotland or Northern Ireland. And so could you perhaps shed a little light on how Brexit and perhaps the coronavirus as well uh, is placing strains on the United Kingdom? Do you think it is, in your opinion, placing strains on the current constitutional makeup of it? You know, is is a reunification in Ireland something on the horizon? Is this just, you know, armchairing from various IR experts? You know, what, what what's sort of the dynamics internally? Well, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, the COVID-19 thing is fascinating, by the way, because it just really brings raw geography back, back back into politics. It was always there, but just and it's not even just in, in terms of Scotland, also Northern England. There's a big row between the governments and metropolitan areas like Manchester and so on. But to return to Brexit, well, yeah, it has for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, Brexit is seen as overwhelmingly an, an, an English policy. Obviously, England is by far the largest entity within the UK. Uh, Scotland voted against it, and Northern Ireland, importantly, voted against it as well. However, the UK government never really tried to get a broad consensus, and, and it's take, gone for quite a, a quite a radical break with with the EU. And this is only, if you think about it, going to reinforce people in Scotland's frustration that they are part of a UK that isn't really taking their interests into account. In Northern Ireland in particular, the British government has actually managed to annoy both sides because it's it's hit on the, the insecurity of both sides about it, which is is that the UK doesn't really care that much about Northern Ireland. And, and Protestant unionists can feel this keenly at times, and this explains sometimes some of their perhaps angst-ridden or, or, or even, uh, even aggressive approaches sometimes from, from some elements of unionism. Boris Johnson, for example, spoke a lot about Northern Ireland before becoming prime minister, but he really abandoned his, his Northern Ireland unionist friends for that deal with the EU last year because he really did separate Northern Ireland quite a lot from the rest of the UK. Generally, he's they've unsettled this delicate situation. Personally, I think that the feeling was with the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 that it opened a door to United Ireland. However, you have to remember that the UK is much larger and economically wealthier country than Ireland. You know, certainly much much larger economy than, than Ireland, and it can. 
it can support Northern Ireland in lots of ways that might be harder for the Republic. And so I think if they played their cards right, I think the Unionists could have probably secured Northern Ireland's status in the UK, despite the emotional attachment of many to uh, United Ireland. However, what's happened in the past four years is that the UK government is being seen not as a source of a economic or political stability in any way, but it's going to be seen as a bit of a, a wild card, kind of a gambling, slightly irresponsible and certainly not, not very attentive towards Northern Ireland's situation. So I think many have started to look at the government in Dublin, which has plenty of problems on its own, but of its own, but many have started to look and said, oh, well, maybe there actually we could we could work with with these people. I think very importantly, there's an increasing number of, of non-aligned voters in in Northern Ireland who vote for parties like the Alliance and don't re- regard themselves as intrinsically nationalist as in United Ireland or unionist as in must be you know, firmly, deeply uh, part of the UK. More kind of open. I think in the future, and they will they will determine probably the political future of Northern Ireland. It's impossible to predict now. It all depends how how this agreement works out and, and so on. Within the next two decades, it wouldn't surprise me if if, ser- if a serious and possibly successful move towards towards Irish unity took place, because uh, Brexit has changed things a lot. In Scotland as well, polls show a majority support for Scottish independence now. We have to see how that works out in a referendum because there are economic risks to that. But certainly, again, Boris Johnson in particular, you know, he's a very English figure. He's, he, he's tapping in self-consciously to a lot of English uh, stereotypes and this jolly, slightly posh character who, <laughs> who uses, you know, archaic, uses archaic words and, and so on. And, and it doesn't travel at all north to Scotland. He, he, he doesn't go down well at all there. He's, a, he's the most unpopular prime minister. Margaret Thatcher was also unpopular in Scotland, but he's, he's up there with her, definitely. Again, there's there's an opportunity there for, for, for Scottish nationalism. Uh, hard to predict, but certainly has put the, uh, the future of the UK at, at risk. And we have to note that quite a few English people don't seem to care. Uh, many English people feel because... England is, particularly Southern England, is the financial and economic driving force of the UK. They may feel that, well, we're, we're paying for, for these people anyway, so if they want to be independent, let them. I think they would come to regret that. I think it would reduce the UK's power and status in many, many ways, particularly if they lost Scotland. Northern Ireland is a bit different. Many could see that it, it might well just, it may well just rejoin the rest of Ireland sometime. But losing Scotland would be a big deal for the UK. I think it would challenge its seat on the UN Security Council and lots of lots of things like that. Scotland's road might be more difficult because they don't have a larger already independent entity to join like Northern Ireland would with the Republic. But of course, that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. And I wanted to kind of close out the podcast if you have time for just a couple more questions with something that was mentioned in the uh, the Irish Times yesterday, I believe it was, where there is a discussion that's starting to brew as regards Joe Biden's candidacy for president. And if he were to attain the Oval Office, what his outlook would be towards Brexit negotiations. Not that he has any direct authority over it, but that there is that all-important U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement still pending, still being negotiated. And some rather firm words coming from his camp, from his campaign, stating that if he does win next week, 
that he would, quote, never sign a trade deal with the UK unless key clauses in the internal market bill were removed, unquote. Particularly the six clauses that would that would breach many of the aspects of the EU treaty. Now, I know you mentioned that the House of Lords putting a break on that, but having a an Irish-American president, is that an impact on the, uh, on the British Isles and in Ireland, or is this something of an American uh, debate with itself? No, it, it would have more of an impact on the, the UK government, which, which places great psychological store in its relations with the US and the US president. Ireland does as well, but Ireland has a deeper engagement, you might have noticed, deep into US politics and the Congress and, and, and state state political uh, entities and, and so on and, and social connections. Uh, the, the, the UK really thinks about their prime minister and, and the president. But, you know, about the trade deal, I think it's pretty clear that obviously a trade deal has to go to US Congress anyway, and it, it wouldn't be, even if Trump might be more supportive of it, it, it wouldn't be ratified if, it's, if it did recreate a border on Ireland. So to that extent, the, the presidential election mightn't matter uh, that much, but I think it matters a great deal about the uh, mood music and the tone and the general sense, in particular for the UK, uh, that, that whether the US supports what uh, what it's doing. Because President Trump has been has been unusual in supporting Brexit. Uh, all previous presidents, you know, post-war ones, while well, they would get annoyed with the EU and have arguments about trade and stuff like that. They've always broadly supported it as being part of, of the U.S., broader U.S. system of alliances. And I think they're right about that, frankly. The EU isn't really a challenge to U.S. superpower status, and it's in many ways a useful kind of partner for it. Obama took, took that approach and was clearly anti-Brexit. Johnson, before he was foreign minister, when he was an MP and a journalist, made a very unwise comment about Barack Obama's Kenyan ancestry that really did not go down well in the Obama administration or the Democratic Party circles more generally. So I think the right that the Biden administration would not be, you know, best of friends with Johnson's government, but they would still, I think, cooperate a lot. I don't think it would be that dramatic, but the sense that they have an, an ally in the White House, although, to be honest, I'm not aware of anything uh, President Trump has actually done to help the UK, apart from say he likes Brexit. And so that kind of brings us to one of the, the last questions of the day for me, which would be, what do you feel is the, the outlook of uh, the United Kingdom in a 2021 scenario. We have a raging pandemic around the world. I know much of Europe, at least Western Europe, is starting to re-enter a new phase of lockdown. Assuming that the vaccine is still, you know, a considerable ways off, perhaps I've heard, at least in America anyway, uh, next summer is being bandied about as something of a, of a deadline or a target, that if we hit that, that we're making good time, uh, when even just a few months ago, there was discussion of it being here by Christmas. So it seems the timeline's sliding a bit. We're in a pandemic world. If a trade deal, if uh, the negotiations are successful, I should say, between the United Kingdom and the European Union and something gets on paper and they're able to, to make a clean break of it, what do you feel is the priorities of the United Kingdom in this world that seems to be in something of a meltdown time period where you have very rogue actors geopolitically, whether it's, you know, Turkey's behavior recently and controversies with France or, you know, the pandemic response or this continual issue of, of China and technology and so on? How does Britain fashion what I think Johnson and the Conservatives have long called a, a global Britain, an outward-looking Britain? W what does that look like in a world where it's a 
It's a medium power. It's a significant power, certainly with the UN security seat and with, you know, still significant economy. But it is one that that is weakened, perhaps, by some some PR battles with the EU, with the you know changes in trade and so on. What, what does that outlook look like for you? Yeah, that's a very good question, because my initial response is, as you've implied, it's the worst time since World War II to be doing this, to be breaking away from your own region and trying this global free trade, which is what they aspire to. But as you know, we've had a wave of protectionism and more what you call geoeconomics with states intervening much more in politics, uh, not in politics, in, in trade and in, in associated issues like technology and so on. So we've this new politicization of economics and geoeconomics within the US being, and I think Biden may continue some of what Trump did in terms of certainly being more forceful and China obviously not being really liberal or open India not being liberal or open and well, Brazil kind of more unpredictable. So I, I think they will pursue these trade agreements and they will get some, but you know, they're very different types of, of trade agreements and some are much deeper and more meaningful than others. But if it's the Johnson government, I think they will knuckle, knuckle down and try and get more of these trade agreements and sell these as a win. But I don't think the British economy will will prosper because, frankly, it, it needs deep access to the rest of, of, of the, the EU because that's where Britain is and that's where you have these supply chains and other intricate interconnections. So it wouldn't surprise me as in a couple of years on that Britain quietly realigns itself with a lot of the EU if, as I suspected, the global Britain thing doesn't work. But I think under Johnson, they'll, they'll try it and they have ideas about subsidizing new tech industries or trying something like that, really trying to take a lead on new technologies like 3D printing and stuff. I don't, I don't fully understand. I'm, I'm not convinced they'll make a success of it. Though. And so pivoting to the other half of the question and probably my final one for the day, it's in regards to the European Union side of the negotiations. Well, let's take a step back for a second. I know you mentioned that America has broadly speaking on a bipartisan basis, Democrat and Republican presidents supported a an active UK inside the European Union framework or back when it was the European uh, coal and steel community earlier in the 20th century and, and how it evolved with time. Um, and I think there is something of a realist angle to that in terms of international theory. I think with the special relationship, the Atlantic Alliance and so on, that many U.S. presidents thought the U.K. was something of a rudder that they could influence to help steer Europe one way or the next from the inside. And obviously that's leaving with Brexit. What is the European Union's perspective towards Brexit at this stage? I know many of the leaders have portrayed a public poker face and said, you know, we've moved on, we're past this, they need us more than we need them. You know, we want to have good relations, but we don't really need them at the end of the day. There's something of a I don't know if a snootiness is the right word for it, but there is something of a we've moved on uh, aspect to some of their public statements. And obviously Europe is battling a COVID pandemic where they do not have the luxury of uh, the British Channel to cut off flights. They have ground traffic between 20 plus countries, people moving and decisions to be made about closures of borders and travel restrictions and so on. They're pursuing sustainable development goals, which you wrote about last year in the Journal of Common Market Studies. They're still trying to articulate this still somewhat fuzzy notion of of sovereignty in, in a European structure on the global stage that acts with soft power and perhaps provides this middle lane between, you know, to put it crudely, extremes in Beijing and extremes in Washington. This is a lot, as you said, going on at one time. What does the European Union look like in a post 
UK order now that the UK is no longer, I mean, they'll still be involved, but no longer a, a voting participant inside the structure. Yeah, superficially and into the surprise of many, Brexit seems initially to have strengthened the EU because firstly enabled them to do what they do best, which is club together and use their economic weight and negotiate with the UK government that, that really got some things badly wrong and, and ended up losing the PR battle, as, as you said. And its response to the pandemic initially in, in March was was very poor, although it doesn't have a big role in health. But it's, it showed the impressive political ability to uh, raise new funding, including for the first time borrowing for the EU as an entity. That's really a big, big thing because EU spending was always managed and, and gatekeep by the member states. And now it's going to be borrowing money as an entity in, in itself. It still has a, a very many crises to deal with. I think it's going to be... A bit less expansive, although it's, it's still doing the global thing and trying to lead really a kind of form of liberalism globally. I think you'd say it's its form of very much supporting international law and climate change initiatives and, and things like that. And it, w- it will still do that, but it's becoming a bit more more realist, a bit more overtly even, even protective, I think, of the EU, the EU market, but also the EU's political space. So I think it, it's going to become a bit more politicized like that, not not quite as as open. The US still will have, I think, plenty of, of influence if it's doing its diplomacy right. Countries like uh, That's a big Ireland if when it comes, comes of doing diplomacy yes. right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm being polite here. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, countries like Ireland, Netherlands, albeit they're not quite as assertive as the UK. The UK was very strong. The UK would put its foot down, and if there was some European security initiative that didn't seem to go with NATO, UK would just go, no, uh, these other countries won't be as, as assertive as that. But yeah, I, I see it it's surviving, uh, albeit through its, its many crises, because I think... For most smaller countries in, in, in Europe, it's obvious that they would be less powerful and more vulnerable without a European Union. So even countries that are Eurosceptic, like Hungary and Poland, they want to kind of change it, but they still see it as a structure of power. So I think you're going to continue to see this. I was called an unidentified political object by uh, Jack Delors <laughs> back in the 1980s. And it, 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 it's not a state. It's not, it's not as coherent. It's not going to be able to you know, change things like uh, the US or China might or, you know, pivot or something, do do something really radical like that. But it's going to continue to aggregate economic power and some political and some security roles uh, as well. I think they're deeply confident, as you say, that the, the UK will end up economically coming back and and looking for a deeper relationship with them. There's some basis for that based on, you know, trade gravity models and generally the, the, the regionalized uh, economies that, that have been in place in the past uh, 30 or 40 years. We'll see how that works. Certainly the UK could be, if it was a hostile presence, could be quite awkward because it also has Russia on, on, on the other end of the continent to, to deal with. But I think once the situation calms down that, that they can have better relations with, with the UK. I think pragmatism will take over. And so I'm going to cheat slightly. That was supposed to be the last one. This will truly be the last question, um, which is I do want to end on a, something of a personal note, if you're willing, sir, being uh, Irish yourself. If you could be placed in charge in a hypothetical scenario of the entire the entire outlook currently of Ireland, of the UK, what are the top two or three things that you see that just that – just, there's these moments in politics where as citizens or as researchers, we look and go, if you just fixed X, Y, and Z, 
this would go so much better. What would those X, Ys, and Zs be for you for a better outcome for both Ireland and the UK? And we'll, we'll end there. Well, I mean, what I would have done, it's kind of slightly counterfactual, but at at the beginning, after the referendum, I think the UK should have had a more flexible, moderate approach and and said, well, at least for the first few years, we'll we'll come to a close arrangement like Norway or Switzerland have, you know, with aligning with some of of, of EU law. That would have been hard to stomach, but they could have said it's not necessarily forever. We're definitely out of the EU that would have taken the heat out of a lot of the, 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 the Irish border issue and would have allowed for things to develop in Northern Ireland as they're developing anyway. I also would have, I would have say, given the COVID-19, I would extend the transition period for a year or two. You know, that, that's probably my, my bias because Brexit is a fantastic idea anyway. But doing it at this time is just adding to, to a lot of stress. And again, one could hope that maybe things could calm down and people could see a bit more clearly what the real interests are because there's you know there's a lot of pride in these things and I think an extension could have, could have helped but I suppose that's that's it well if you ever put your name on a ballot sir you'll have my support fully so I appreciate it <laughs> for leadership in, inside the situation well sir unfortunately we have run out of time but I do want to say thank you very much uh, to Dr. Patrick Holden University of Plymouth for coming on board the podcast and for sharing of your knowledge and your perspective on these issues I know our listeners appreciate it and uh, hopefully we can have you on again sometime we, we thank you very much yeah thanks Carson really enjoyed it